Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Samantha M. Cooper, and each episode will present conversations with global musicologists, ethnomusicologists, and sound studies scholars who specialize in the music and sound of Jewish experience. I am absolutely delighted to welcome you to today's episode featuring Dr. Asaf Sheleg. Hello, and thank you so, so much for joining me on today's podcast episode. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your name, title, current affiliation, and anything you're working on at the moment? My name is Asaf Sherleg. I'm a professor of musicology at Hebrew U. My research focuses on music by and about Jews in the 20th century, particularly art music, but these definitions, I hope we can get a chance to talk about them later, and the manner by which these definitions have conditioned our research. And this is one of the bad patrimonies of modernism. I'm also the director of the Cherik Center for the study of Zionism, the Yeshuv, and the State of Israel at Hebrew U, which uh, allows me to be in touch with a bigger network of people working on this very undefined field called Israel Studies. Of course, I never limit myself just to the political borders of Israel. It's only part of the bigger canvas of modern Jewish culture. And I see myself as a cultural historian whose primary sources happen to be either sound recordings or written scores. Excellent. Tell me a little bit about one of your earliest encounters with Jewish sounds or music. Why was this such a formative experience for you? And what sorts of personal or musical experiences motivated you to want to study this ambiguous thing we call Jewish music? Well, to begin with, I come from a Moroccan Jewish family. And one of the benefits of coming from a writ large Sephardic family is that modernism and religion does not come at the expense of one or the other. So we always went to synagogues on Shabbats. We weren't observant in the strict meaning of the word, but going to the synagogue and hearing Putim and learning Te'amim and being a Baal Kriyal, knowing how to read the Torah and the Haftorah was a given. So music was never an other, so to speak, when we talked about Jewish music. And it was kind of surprising when I was in graduate school and and one of my professors who ended up being my PhD supervisor, Professor Edwin Sarusi, demonstrated that a certain popular song from Morocco in the 20s ended up being a piyut for Arvit of Motzeh Shabbat. And he translated the song, which is called El Chayram Gadol, very familiar from the area of Asuera in Morocco. But the original song, its lyrics read... Ma'am, your kaftan is open. So I kind of learned about these migrations, which again, I took for granted because I knew this, these musics and how they migrated from one liturgical to paraliturgical to secular mm-hmm. settings all the time. So this was a formative experience that developed in parallel with me studying piano, studying classical music. At a certain age, I started playing music by Israeli composers who I didn't know existed because, I mean, you had to be European, uh, white male, and usually dead for me to perform you. <laughs> but uh, but now I saw they were still male, but still composers living nearby, some in Jerusalem, some in Tel Aviv. This was a revelation. Of course, my teachers back at the time didn't know how to present that in a, I don't know, historical manner. So they just jumped to 
post postmodern practices with with proportional notation and sometimes graphic scores, which was a bit it was a too big a leap for for someone who just played I don't know Shostakovich or uh, Prokofiev, right? It was too big a leap. There was nothing in the middle. But later on, when I started my undergraduate studies at the Royal College of Music in London, and when I was working on one of my recitals, I came across a piece called Three Hebrew Chorales by Mario Castellano Tedesco, whom I didn't know as a composer at the time. I ended up writing about him, and he became one of the protagonists of this network of modern Jewish art music in the early 20th century. And these three Hebrew chorales were mesmerizing because they showed an option that wasn't familiar to me because Jewish music was either liturgical or overtly marked drawing on the Eastern European soundscape. And this one was by a Sephardi composer who knew nothing about Judaism, but his references were modern neoclassical Italian composers, as well as Cesar Frank or Debussy, even Stravinsky to a certain extent, harmonically speaking, texturally speaking. And, and suddenly I saw another option. beautifully written and I've been performing with this piece a lot and the third movement of this piece cited the song of the sea Exodus 15 according to the musical tradition of Sephardi Italian Jews so of course this sent me to the anthology and I ended up writing a PhD dissertation on the ecosystems of modern composers in the early 20th century nothing to do with Israel this the world had developed in parallel with Zionism, it had no affiliation to Zionism, no individual in this group had anything to do with Zionism, nor did they want to. And I discovered another option that wasn't subjugated to those cartoonish stereotypes by which musicology has been managing the discourse for more than a century. So that was a very important revelation. Of course, the more I studied Jewish music, the more I dug up those materials that were the Talmud calls that Girsa the Ankuta. They were the version of my childhood. I mean, I didn't have to learn them anew tropes, psalmody, putim, and so forth. That's fascinating. Moving on to your journey through these various institutions and to all of these people you met, who would you say were some of your biggest advocates along the way and people you looked up to throughout your journey? Well, to begin with, I mean, my alma mater, when I earned my PhD at Hebrew U, all the professors there, musicologists or non-musicologists, I mean, in many ways, the Faculty of Humanities at Hebrew U is one big Jewish studies department, <laughs> a huge, or the biggest in the world, probably. So you have art historians and historians of various kinds, literary scholars, musicologists, of course. And among musicologists, the, there were people like the late Don Haran, uh, of course, uh, Ruta Cohen, Edwin Serussi, my PhD advisor. And there were other individuals who specialized in either modern Hebrew literature or, or Jewish art or just modern history, Jewish culture, modern Jewish culture was always in the background. So there were people like the late Ezra Mendelssohn, and of course, people from musicology with whom I've been in touch, whether it's the late Richard Taraskin and Susan McClary, may she live a long and healthy life. And they were, they were people to talk with about my project, even though some of them were outsiders. But I learned how to talk through their disciplines, through their materials and to find some common denominators through which we can think about the bigger themes beyond the specific case study. 
going off track just a little bit, but I do think it's relevant. I was noticing that there's this continuity in your own journey between doing your PhD at Hebrew U and then staying and being professor there. What has that been like to be affiliated with the same institution for so long? And what are some of the joys or repercussions that come with that? Well, first of all, it's fun, you know, coming back home. I started my career in the U.S. at WashU in St. Louis and then at UVA. So I don't take that for granted uh, to get this uh, position at Hebrew U. I actually set the bar very high. I told my wife, if we're ever going to go back to Israel, it's only going to be if I get a job at Hebrew U, which <laughs> narrows down the options, I mean, uh, brutally. So in one way, it was really fun to to come back, to to meet all the professors who were part of my journey when I started it. On the other hand, the students changed and their level of orientation changed. And for me personally, there were some road bumps because I came having taught it in the U.S. with certain methodologies and expectations, and they were very different. And I almost forgot how it is that I'm supposed to act back home. <laughs> so I expect like the graduate students to read a book a week. Now they read half a book a week, which is good. <laughs> the, the reading list was, was just too brutal for, for them at first. And the pace of learning had to be slower. But then, I mean, in parallel, the... Students' orientation, their familiarity with classical music, with uh, basic harmony or music theory has changed dramatically. And that brought us to think more than once on how do we continue with that? Because we cannot just offer the same classes for a constituency that is changing in front mm-hmm. of our eyes. Exactly. Right? And we have the same problem in, in Jewish music writ large, but we also have these problems in musicology. Of course, we change the narrative if we teach 19th century music or 20th century music. We have ample examples of women writing music. They don't have to be the exception anymore. We don't have to include them because we have to. I mean, Mm -hmm. we do it by merit. But do we still have to follow this uh, telos, this uh, linear uh, chronological story rather than talk about topics, perhaps, and break them down? while giving examples in different locations in different times? I don't know. I mean, I do know. Actually, I'm the uh, minority. I represent the minority in this argument. And we're still constrained uh, by these patrimonies that I don't think we should change. I mean, we've we've been changing the curriculum uh, quite significantly, but not all the way through. It's beyond introducing students to popular music and music for films and stuff like that. Because if we do that for the sake of popularity or for otherness, then we miss the point, of course. Right. We have to, to create a new equalizer, a new thematic equalizer where, where everything is just part of a bigger network, whether it's technology or popular music. And it shouldn't be the opposite of art music because they've been dialectically interacting uh, for, for the last century, at least. So actually more than that. But then these are the kinds of things that we have to offer. And, and it's the process of changing. I think we change, our pace of changing is slower than the students. So there's a gap. These are the couple of things I've learned coming to Hebrew U. As a scholar who works very consciously with raising or um, bringing new scholars into the fold and teaching them everything they need to know to succeed, whether it be in your field or a different field, what advice would you offer to prospective students or new scholars who are planning to look at some aspect of Jewish music studies? I think that one of the most revolutionary things you can do right now is stick to primary sources. There is too much discussion going on about and criticizing secondary texts without getting in touch with the primary sources, especially the music itself. This is one of the problems that we see when, I mean, it's only natural that we would talk about the way technology changed history and changed the discourse and it would change our methodologies. And I think you cannot teach, for example, 20th century music without talking about the invention of tape 
of electronic music, the idea of being able to reproduce sound, to, to sample sounds, even just if, we, if they have this narrow domain, narrow niche of art music. We cannot talk about this without these technologies. It, it also includes the technology of notation, which mm-hmm. has changed dramatically, or what Taruskin called post-literacy, right? All those undefined states of matter that we call post-literacy, we must introduce them into the discourse, but our grounding should be primary sources and scores, because at the end of the day, we should know how to refer to these texts and make our own original arguments, because the closer we stay to the source, of course, needless to say, it doesn't negate the fact that we will be reading everything around it. But as long as we stick to the source, we'd be able to formulate original thought-provoking, hopefully, arguments. So tell me a little bit about your most recent, either complete or incomplete research project, why you selected it, and what excites you the most about it. I'm currently writing a book which is tentatively titled After Hebrew Culture. It deals basically with the last 30 years of art, music, and contemporaneity, mostly in Israel, but not just in Israel. As it happens, when I finish a book, I mean, the last 10 or 20 pages are in many ways a precursor for the next one perhaps except this current one, because <laughs> I have plans on writing an, an ethnography on Bernstein next, but maybe we'll talk about it later. So in my theological stains, in my second book, I managed to show how culture or art music separates from the, the territorial stipulations that had been conditioning Hebrew culture from, from the outset. And when that happened, I realized that I wouldn't have any other option but to basically return to the same ecosystems, or at least the same methodologies with which I have been studying my protagonists from the PhD, those composers who were unaffiliated with Zionism, who had nothing to do with the Zionist project, nor did they think about moving to Palestine. This was completely, I think of people like Schoenberg or Mion or Castellano Tedesco, moving to Palestine for them was like moving to the desert. I mean, why would they do that with their reputation? Of course, they got visas to the U.S. It was easy for them. So I found new creatures who write music that either reverts diasporic nationalism by annulling, first and foremost, the homogenization and singularization of, of the diaspora. It's always the diaspora in the Zionist grammar. So they, they revert to diasporic nationalism that expands the conversation with other Jewish histories and cultures that previously threatened this territorial project called Zionism. But then there were other creatures who they are still, they're still alive. That's, that's, that's a new methodology for me. Almost no archives. There are new creatures who, who write music. I, they either revert to the anonymity of intervals and clusters and graphic scores and old, old brand, old, old brands of modernism we're familiar with, or they comment on those major issues that concern either modern Hebrew literature or Israeli society but without subjugating themselves to the national. For example, Chaya Chernovin's opera, Pnima, Chernovin is, is uh, a Harvard composer, as you know, basically she, she sets a novel by David Grossman to music while muting the libretto. There is no libretto for this score. Well, if you read this text, this novel, you realize that there is no way that this could be turned into a dialogical libretto. No way, unless you reduce it brutally and then destroy the novel itself. So what she did instead is she she muted the, the libretto, but then wrote an entire soundtrack commenting on the need to denationalize the Holocaust, which is what Grossman did already in 1985. Mm-hmm. So this spillover is something that we cannot say is disconnected from, from Hebrew culture, 
but then the territorial stipulations are not there anymore. This is just one example. Another composer, Betty Olivero, refuses the modernist separation between the ethnographic and the artistic. And then you see a whole new brand of late modernism, some would say, with some postmodern imports, perhaps. Again, you have to, have to look at a specific piece. And it's part of a space that is not, again, not disciplined by political borders. And so the difference between... so. The interest in Jewish music is pretty much like her interest in femininity region-wide or non-Jewish music, right? Which is adjacent. It's contiguous, so you can't ignore that. And so we have new hybrids of modern Jewish art music, finally, without the iron grip of nationalism. Can you tell me a little bit about your two book projects and how they connect or are contiguous to one another? <laughs> Well, the first book, Jewish Contiguities in the Soundtrack of Israeli History, started off by saying 1948 is meaningless in terms of culture. And I got a lot of, you know, fire for that. You can imagine. Can imagine. I yeah. mean, it's, a, it's an important historical date for sure. It's an important political date. But, but the more I studied, because I started my studies in the field of 20th century music without the, all those preconditions of Zionism and territorialism and the Yeshuv and stuff, I was dealing with modern music with composers, and I'll tell you a little bit, a little bit about them later. But when I looked at this set of dates that have been disciplining cultural histories of the region ever since, I saw that there is always a 48 and a 67 and a 73 and a 77 and an 82 and, and the first intifada. It's always political dates after which people say there is a reaction, a new brand of music, opposition to this, opposition... I Not necessarily. Yes on, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no. I wanted to say something harsher, but uh, I'll let the, the, our listeners imagine that. But so, um, so I wanted to say there is there is a dialectical flow, especially when the protagonists under discussion during the 30s and 40s are emigrants from Europe, most of which, I mean, the the, the vast majority of which had no political interest, no national interest to come to Israel. If anything, they saw their uh, arrival in, in Palestine, was the Israel, as, as temporary. They wanted to go back to Europe. But when that turned out to be impossible, they had to negotiate some stylistic compromises. So here is what I learned from this project. Uh, first of all, the modern composers in Europe who had, who had no affiliation with Zionism, most of them were outside Judaism. They didn't know Hebrew. They didn't know about the liturgy. And yet they were ascribed with so many Jewish characteristics and knowledge and intention that wasn't there. They often reverted to the Eastern European soundscape, which was for them either a site of memory or a site of loss or a site of learning at best. But they were outsiders and they were, weren't treated like that. They were treated, as long as you're Jewish, you probably know the whole, you know, everything that had been written from, from the book of Genesis till at least until the, the Zohar. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. So I had to qualify that and understand and resituate them both in this sub-field sub we call modern Jewish art music on the one hand and 20th century music. I mean, I didn't want to ghettoize them. When they came to, when, they, when some of them came to Palestine, the lesser lights, not those whose reputation allowed them to move to the US, to the US 
when they came to Palestine, they had to grapple with this thing called Zionist, the Zionist project, and to understand to what extent do they want to project this symbolism that was pretty easy to work with because it practiced 19th century exoticism uh, writ large. And then I started to see that there was another problem, historiographically speaking, that they were taxonomized into groups. This was this generation, that generation, first, second, third, and fourth, and, and so forth. And uh, so much so that I was getting emails from composers saying, hello, my name is this and that. I'm a fourth generation composer. <laughs> I mean, I thought generations are applied to cell phones, but apparently. So I had to do serious archival research to understand those contiguities between Europe and, and Palestine transforming into Israel without having those political dates eclipse this entire project. Mm -hmm. And then I had to differentiate at the level, at the granular level of works of composers dealing with this transcription or this text, their their, their command of Hebrew, their familiarity with Jewish liturgy and so forth, and then try to have this very fuzzy uh, network whose dialectical rhythms are different and simultaneous. And that's how Jewish contiguities came to be. And it stops more or less in, in the 70s, where composers are beginning to move back to diaspora Jewish cultures. But this is just this was just the uh, this was this was a precursor. And again, I, I didn't want to exceptionalize this music. I always treated that as imports and spillovers and misreadings of modernist brands in Europe, because that's where it came from. Even if someone was dated enough to write music in the style of, I don't know, Dvozhak, right? It was still a European import that had to be considered and, and factored in. But with the second book, it overlaps. It's, it's not a direct continuity, which I don't believe in. But uh, I went back to the 50s, more or less, and tried to understand the way the theological infrastructure of Zionism conditioned or shaped the writing of Jewish music and, and the agency of, of Jewish music Jewish musical traditions in the writing of art music from the 50s and roughly through the turn of the 21st century. So I, I, in, in many ways, I mean, chronologically speaking, I'm, I'm starting from the more or less same periods with which I've been writing about in the first book. But in the second one, I can dedicate some time to operas, biblical operas, so to speak, like Solet and Dor, uh, which is, a, uh, for lack of a better term right now, is a post-tonal opera which on the one hand uh, is part and parcel of this bibliocentric discourse, which liter which, which interprets the, the Bible uh, literally, stola scriptura, so to speak. But its language defies the, the entire regime of representation. And, and it happens already in 1955. So already at this stage, and it happened during the, the, the first book, I realized that nationalism has become our default when we come to study this music. And it shouldn't be because there are too many examples. In fact, they are, I, I know now that they are the majority of music that does not abide by nationalism or is only adjacent to nationalism. And we should change our, our, our lenses because right now the only lens we put on is the nationalist one. And it's just too narrow. So I was looking at the, at the spread of composers' use of the liturgy again, Taking, taking into consideration their command of Hebrew, their proficiency in the liturgy, whether someone had done field work or just sampled transcriptions from Edelson or from anywhere else, which of course attests to a different level of familiarity, the way he worked with that in his, uh, in his music. I mean, if it's just cited as is, 
boring. He's an outsider, obviously. If he, if he would do more than that, then the integration would, would leave so many traces to have, again, another very fuzzy network. I'm not looking to have everything in order and present this artificial picture where there is a straight line of development and, and everything, everything happens in stages. It does, no, the, this is a simultaneous uh, unfolding of chaos, which you have to uh, embrace embrace and and partly narrate because there is a limit to what you can write and and then i i, I followed the, the the arrival of several composers especially andrea haidu who arrives here in 1966 and the way he arrived with no debts to hebrew culture whatsoever and for him the whole idea of repressing or rhetorically negating the diaspora was foolish i mean it was spartan because he grew up as an ethnographer and he realized the road that a certain ethnographic import travels before it becomes an artsy product and it could never be on either side that's why he was so torn when he was writing his music and he grew up in hungary defected quote unquote to to the west and got to experience the, the Cold War rhetoric from both sides and didn't believe either narrative, but then he had to write music at the end of the day. So he went to Kolels, he went to Yeshivas in Bunebrak and recorded Gemara Nigun. He was recording the heterophonic clouds and he brought Eastern Europe, Europe back. And he re-ethnicized Ashkenazi Jewish culture in Israel. Ashkenazi, which were the hegemony, set themselves as a supra-ethnic group. But he relativized their ethnicity. And by doing so, he created a revolution in, in our very perception. Of course, he was attacked as an auto antisemite in the 70s when he was presenting his, his Ludus Pascalis. But he hit a nerve. He knew exactly what he was doing. Again, he refused the separation of the uh, ethnographic from the artistic. Therefore, uh, he, he signaled a new stage. And the book ends roughly with compositional solutions in, in the chemical sense of the word, right? And I started to look at those hybrids on which I'm writing right now, my book uh, called After Hebrew Culture. Wonderful. So that takes us full circle. Looking forward right. a little bit, um, instead of asking you about new research questions, you had hinted that you were thinking of writing an ethnography of Leonard Bernstein. Would you tell right. me a little bit about that project and how you're potentially conceiving of it? Well, I, I just came back from a conference in Bonn on, on Bernstein. It was supposed to be held in 2018, but because... In 2019, actually, but because of COVID and I mean, it was delayed and it was held only in June of this year. So my concept there was, I, I call it Bernsteinism of tear. Maftir is, is the person reading the Torah, not just the last segment of the Torah, weekly Torah portion. And of course, this is a metonym for Bernstein's insiderness. He learned Hebrew from the age of seven at Mishkan Tefila, the first conservative synagogue in, in Boston, uh, to the point of becoming a chazan for the, for the uh, youth service. So he was leading the prayer, which means that he had to know much more in terms of Hebrew. And some of the archival documents I had a chance to go through. Again, I need to do this research after I finish this book, but attest that he gave his bar mitzvah speech in Hebrew. And I found some rare soundbites at the National Library of Israel where Bernstein is interviewed in Hebrew in 1948. Wow. Yeah. And he came and you listen to him and, and there, he has very few mistakes, you know, preposition here and there. <laughs> and sometimes he uses a word like wunderkind, which every other immigrant in Tel Aviv would have used that word. And when you listen to the first symphony, Jeremiah, which was written, whose third movement was written in 1939 when he was 21, you realize that he's paraphrasing both the tropes of the School of Lamentations in Ashkenazi Nusach and the Aftora tropes. 
Now, haftorotropes already attest to a level of insiderness that is as unprecedented among composers of this caliber. Mm-hmm. We, earlier, we talked about those outsiders, Jewish composers who had nothing to do with Judaism, Schoenberg, Mio, Kostom, Tedesco, Bloch, and so forth. Now we have someone who knows Haftarah, but you can say, okay, Haftarah tropes are fairly easy because you hear them every week, but Scroll of Lamentations, that's, this dirge is recited only once a year. How would he know that at the age of 21? Unsurprisingly, he sends this score with a setting, the third movement, which, which paraphrases the, uh, the Scroll of Lamentations uh, reading in Ashkenazi Nusa. He sends that to, in August, to Copeland, saying, I, I wrote this bizarre piece. Of course, no one will sing it, but please tell me what you think. It's really important. He knew why it was really important. This is his first symphonic work. And he sets verses from Lamentation in the original biblical Hebrew. So you have all this in one package. He knows Hebrew. He sets that with all mediators. This is something we cannot say about Schoenberg, about uh, Bloch. No. When Bloch wanted to express Judaism, I mean, without knowing the language, he was replacing the word God with Elohim, or he was using Amen or Hallelujah. But, but this young man approaches the Bible and knows how to animate that, and he never suffices with citations as is. So this is just the beginning. It's like this moment is like a big semicolon after which you can reread this entire work. So I have to reconstruct the ethnography beyond, beyond those, pardon me being direct, beyond those methodologies of representation and identities. I think mm-hmm. these words should, should be exiled from the lexicon for a couple of decades. I'll look forward to seeing how you engage with existing Bernstein scholarship as you're reconciling all of these details of his youth and his early writing. How would you say you understand this quote-unquote field of Jewish music? What issues or challenges with this field of study do you think that scholars today need to remain attentive to? I'll talk about what personally interests me, and I don't see too many scholars doing that. Hebrew Salmadi. Uh, Hebrew Salmadi is a fascinating ethnographic field. We have uh, the book by Flander uh, titled Hebrew Salmadi, which is, which is a, a very early experiment uh, trying to reconstruct the Ta'amei and Met, the tropes of, of the Book of, of Psalm, which of course don't really operate in the manner Torah tropes uh, work. But this essence of, it's, it's very close, it's, 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 a, it's a core issue where you have a poetic text that you can just read with the tropes without even singing, you know, with a pitchless reading, you can, you can get the musical, you can get the music out of it. <laughs> And the way it's different but repetitive among different communities that were not in touch with one another across the globe is something I think that would have major repercussions on, on the field. And this is another way of saying that we have to bring back the ethnographic to the discourse, whether it's sound bites, you know, recordings of Chazanim from the early 20th century, or like Chris Silver just did with his book on, on writing the history of North Africa, again, without differentiating from, you know, the Jewish from the Arab. I think we were there at one point, and now composition brings us back to that. And our methodology should, should uh, acknowledge that. Our methodology should acknowledge that. But again, always with the ethnographic in mind, which, it, again, is another way of saying 
get your primary sources in line. They are very, very important. So when I come to think about Jewish music, I think this adjective is becoming more and more problematic as an adjective. And I have a similar issue with the adjective. People say, do you do Israeli art music? No, I say, I do art music in Israel. Sometimes it's not even in Israel. But uh, these adjectives are problematic, to be sure. The way to bypass them is not by thinking of uh, necessarily about new formulations. I think it's also important, which is why I present myself as someone who does who studies music by and about Jews. But but also, this is something that requires that we, I think, apply network theories to our research and forget about writing in an orderly manner in order to reconstruct something that had never existed, like, you know, like a, a developmental um, view on, on a certain topic. It, again, as we said earlier, it just doesn't exist. So we have to embrace fuzziness and and try to narrate these simultaneities of the simultaneity where wherein we have various dialectical rhythms where things lead unexpectedly from one phenomenon to another where we have cuts and we have voids and we have all kinds of spillovers i'll tell you a story i've been working during the last two weeks on scores by leon chidlovsky leon chidlovsky was born in chile 1931 and he was one of the most important modernist composers, avant-garde composers in, in South America, not, not only in Chile. And he was writing what we would call modern Jewish art music, even incorporating texts from the liturgy in Hebrew in his scores. Not at Bernstein's level. I mean, he's not an insider like Bernstein, but he had no interest to do that in Chile in 1931. And Cold War dictates, socialist, so, social realist dictates were a little bit different there. But in 1969, he meets Eden Patosh, who was the director of the Tel Aviv Music Academy. They meet at Bernstein's apartment, and Patosh offers him a job, and he moves to Israel. And then you have this meteor hitting the academy after being isolated, with only few individuals going to Darmstadt or to the Princeton Columbia uh, Electronic Music Center. Suddenly comes a person who writes aleatoric music and graphic scores and represents the avant-garde of, of uh, South America, just trailing behind what's happening in Europe. And suddenly he's in Israel. He's 91, and he's responsible for some of the important people, some of whom uh, are very close to you geographically, like Chaya Chernovin. But not because of his style, but because of the stylistic horizon, the, or the aesthetic horizon he was offering his students. And then you see a person who is part of a, of a network that has Bernstein, modern Jewish art music and art music in Israel, contemporary art music, all in one, all embodied in one person. So these are kind of the kind of networks that excite me. And then, and I think we should aim at those, again, fuzzy tentative maps. <laughs> Do you believe that there is such a thing as Jewish music or an identifiable Jewish sound? Why or why not? And if so, how would you characterize it? And of course, if this question seems too essentializing, what questions about the music and sound of Jewish experience would you ask instead? I'll start from the end. From the last question, I think we shouldn't be asking what does it mean in terms of Jewishness or not, but how does it mean? And when you ask how does it mean, I think it voids the other questions. How does it mean? And, and when you network it, then you realize that the Jewish is not the precondition for work, but it's part of the equation. It has to be part of the equation, never the equation in, in its entirety. So the moment you ask, how does it mean? I think you get you get your ducks in a row and you don't have to ask those previous questions. And that, that's how I exempt myself from answering that. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> well, thank you so, so much for your time today and for all of your insightful answers to these many questions. 
And I'll look forward to the next time we get to speak. Thank you so much, Asaf. Absolutely. Thank you, Samantha. Thanks for listening to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors, the American Society for Jewish Music, the Milken Center for Music of American Jewish Experience at UCLA, and Harvard University Center for Jewish Studies. Tune in next month when I will be joined by Dr. Julia Regal to discuss their ongoing study of music in the Warsaw Ghetto. 